Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. Uh, before I forget, because it is the holiday season, we've got the new limited edition oversized Phoenix tour posters up on the merch page. Uh, they were done by the artist Gonzo, Jason Gonzalez. And when they're gone, they're gone. They're large posters. They're beautiful posters. They're, they're hand screened uh, and they were specially made for this gig. And he did a beautiful job with that. That's up there. Also, I'd like to let you know that I'm on the latest episode of Alan Alda's podcast, Clear and Vivid. Go check that out wherever you get your podcasts. It's always nice talking to Alan. First time I talked to him was in a hotel room and he gave me and Sarah a cold, but I didn't tell him about it. But it was a, it was a doozy. It was a doozy, Alan. Nice conversations both times, but the cold I could have done without. Uh, Tim Blake Nelson is on the show today. Tim Blake Nelson, that guy. That guy, that actor. Who's that guy? That guy. He's in that new Coen Brothers movie, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is streaming on Netflix. He's been in other Coen Brothers movies. He was on uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Is that how you, is that it? Uh, you've seen him. Great actor. And I couldn't have been more off about my assumptions about him because he's an Oklahoma guy. And I'd see him in things and you just, you make assumptions. But man, what a surprising and engaged and, and, Interesting and and completely out of uh, left field, a Jewy conversation. So you Jews, tee up. Jewness is coming. Oklahoma style. Didn't think that was around, did you? Yep. I saw Beautiful Boy last night. And as somebody who is uh, engaged in the recovery racket and part of it and uh, uh, attributes it to saving my life. It was hard. It was hard to watch. It's going to be hard for anyone to watch. But if you are uh, a recovery person, you've certainly heard the stories before. To see the story is another, a, a whole other ball of wax. It's a, it's a very emotional and relentless film. And it, it really fucked me up last night. And I just, uh, I hope that everybody knows out there. And I get a lot of emails about this all the time. There's help, man. There's help. There's help. Get help. Get help if you can. I mean, I know if you're in the grips of it, if you're if you're if you're being strangled from the inside by addiction and that that monster inside of you is not uh, giving you any choices, uh, you know, find a window, find a window, find a moment, a reprieve where you can 
push back and, and get some help, you just call. Just call. Call the number. Call the number. A-A-N-A. Whatever A. Call the number. Talk to somebody. God damn it. It just haunted me. It's so fucking heartbreaking and horrible. Addiction is. Just fucking horrible. But uh, so I've been, you know, checking back in. I'm not feeling squirrely, but I'm feeling a little dry. I don't know if you can hear that in my voice. Feeling a little dry. It rained here, man. It rained in L.A. like torrential rain. Fucking glorious. I can't tell you, man. You live out here. Obviously, the fires are awful. Did a lot of damage. And you just feel the, the dryness, the dry, everything. It's just I, I go on hikes a couple times a week. And I feel like I'm just walking through kindling that could go up at any second. It's just the, the land is so parched so deeply that nothing looks alive. It's like an alien landscape. It's fucking awful. So when it rains, especially like it did the other day, just like rain so fucking hard. It's like, yes, I can almost feel the earth kind of absorbing it, like just the relief of the of the ground. I feel it. And it also diminishes all that dryness in the air so I can touch my cats again. There's so much fucking static electricity. I'm afraid I'm going to kill monkey or La Fonda. They're old. They're old. I don't want to shock them to death with my finger just saying hi. But uh, but the other thing that happens out here that I can't quite ever understand is as soon as it fucking rains in Los Angeles, people become morons in their automobiles. It's like instant stupid. It's like as soon as the car gets wet, it's like, what, what am I? How do I? I don't know. Oh, no. I, di- I don't understand it. I mean, maybe it's because I've lived in a lot of different weather, a lot of different places on the East Coast. I've dug my car out of snow banks that were put there by the fucking snow plows. Is that a conspiracy? Is it? I know the roads need to be clear, but is part of that deal to keep the roads clear to completely put a wall of snow up next to yours? If you park on the street, when I lived in Boston, New York, if it snows overnight, you wake up, there's a six foot wall next to your car of snow that just becomes ice. Is that the city's way of saying like, yeah, maybe wait till spring to pull out. But here it's the same with the with the rain. I just don't understand it. You like cars are stalling in the middle of the highway. I mean, what kind of neglect? What kind of service did you neglect to to, to when it rains hard? Your car just stops working. I mean, and and people just I look. I don't want anyone to hurt themselves, and I I certainly. But but come on, man! It's rain. Pace yourselves. Stay the proper distance behind people. Don't don't go really fast and, and then slam on your brakes and wondering why you're sliding. Maybe the roads aren't good. I don't know what it is, but every year it's the same thing. But, you know, you ride a line, man. It's just you ride a line in the sense of, like, who you are as a person. I've talked about this before. I used to do a fucking bit about it, for God's sake. But, like, I, I took off the other day. We had, you know, we're shooting on location. It's about 45 miles away. And I'm up at 5.15 in the morning. I'm on the road at 6.00. To head out to location. It's still dark out to shoot glow. And uh, I 10 minutes out on the highway on the 134, I hit just a wall of traffic, just a standstill. I'm just 10 minutes in. I'm, I got my tea. I'm jacked as fuck and I'm not moving. And it's raining and I'm not moving for a fucking hour. And there's miles of traffic. And, it, and I, I took my own mind into my own hands and I disregarded the Google Maps advice. And when Google Maps gives it to you, you know, they mean it. You know, with Waze, 
you don't know where you're going. It just, it's a default with them. It's sort of like, who gives a fuck? Just get him off the highway and let's give him a tour of uh, the industrial area that he doesn't know about near his home. If Google Maps tells you to change, they're like, okay, we've, we've, uh, we've processed this and we've decided you, it doesn't happen that often. But I'm like, no, fuck it. My baseless instincts are to stay on the highway. And I did. And I seethed and I bucked and I thrashed. And then I eventually gave up. And when I realized, oh, fuck it, there's nothing I can do. I'm going to be an hour and a half late to the shoot. I hope the whole day isn't fucked, but uh, fuck it. I'm here. And then as it starts moving, you're like, I don't know. You, you know, you're relieved. And then, you know, as it starts to reveal itself what's happened, you know, there's that moment of horror. And then there's that moment of uh, satisfaction that something happened. And then the, you know, the sort of... Uh, gratitude like god damn i'm glad i'm not that guy and then the sort of concern and empathy i hope everyone's okay but what had happened was a semi i guess a jackknifed in the middle of the night and just laid itself down on its side across all four lanes of the highway and they got one lane on the side the shoulder open finally and there's just a truck on its side like it, it couldn't have been planned more perfect to fuck up traffic for two days. And you see that truck, and it didn't look like there was fire, anybody was probably hurt, but that was a rough phone call for that guy. You know, call to the boss, or maybe he's his own boss, the call to the to whoever he was delivering to. Ugh. But, uh, you know, the anger sort of dissipates, the relief comes, and then you got all that free highway after that, and you're sort of like, this is the way it should be. Why does it take a semi laying itself down to make L.A. highways drivable? But I hope that guy's all right. We made it. We made our day. Had a good time the other night, actually, shooting with Allison. I like it when it's just the two of us, and we're just in it for a whole scene, and I feel like I'm doing something, and I can integrate my new tools and focus on the the job of acting it was it was fun it was fun okay is that all right to have a little fun oh so oh yeah i remember it was my dad's 80th birthday on the 30th happy birthday dad he just i don't think he's ever listened to this podcast never seriously i don't think he my father has never listened to one of my 900, almost 1,000 podcasts. But I called him up on his age. I, you know, here's the fucking thing. It's like, I was going to call him. You know, 80 is a big deal. Then I wake up and he'd already called. Hey, just saying hi. A lot of people are calling. So he fucked that up. So I called him. Like, hey, I was going to call. Happy birthday. But you kind of fucked up that. You know, me, you know, you preempted. I don't know what you did there, but uh, you took it away from me, old man. I didn't say that. I said, happy birthday, you made it, good for you, you feeling all right? And then he started talking about politics, and the thing is, my father, you know, was a Democrat, and then he's, like, he's, uh, he claims he switched, but he didn't really know what any of it means, and he still doesn't really. He's got, it's weird when you realize your, your parents or whoever you talk to, maybe people in your life, have no real sense. I, I'd be surprised if he knew all three branches of government. But, you know, he just picks up these buttons. You know, he's like, uh, you, know, you know, he said he became a Republican after the Kavanaugh thing. And it's just so clear that he 
he believes that uh, Fox News is news and that the guy talking seems like he knows what he's talking about. So he's giving me the Fox talking points. I said, I'm not going to have this conversation with you because you have no intellectual clarity or any depth to what you're saying. You're just saying things with no, you don't have any idea what's happening. Where'd you get your information? He's like, I watch things. I watch a few different, where'd you get it? I, I watch a couple different shows. Where'd you get it? Well, on Fox, he's like, yeah, probably. I'm like, all right, I just can't, I don't think we need to do this. You know, I don't think we need to do it. You know, if you're just going to regurgitate what Hannity says, he says he seems to know what he's talking about. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of wrong-minded, horrible people seem to know what they're talking about. It's not hard to seem to know what you're talking about. But, you know, we got through it. Anyway, let's get into to this interview because I tell you, man, I thought it was great. Tim Blake Nielsen is a very impressive actor and, and all, a very interesting guy, one of the great character actors of our time right now. He's, a, he's in the new Coen Brothers movie, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. He is Buster Scruggs. He's in that first, uh, the first um, story. There are, I think, five or six stories. Tom Waits is in one. Yes, I'm trying to get... Everyone you want me to get on the show, I'm trying to get on the show. I'm not magic. I don't know why Albert Brooks won't come on. I don't know. Like... Doesn't it look whatever? Tim Blake Nelson is here, and I had made assumptions about him, and uh, they were all wrong. His story about his uh, family's how they ended up in Oklahoma. He's full on Oklahoma, and you know, I, you know what? I'm not going to tip any of it. I'm just going to tell you that that movie is streaming on Netflix now, and this is me in conversation with Tim Blake Nelson. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called the Foxed page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. I just had this a straight-up black cowboy boot that I remember eventually just disintegrating. Like, I wore them a lot. It was a thing. I had a Western belt that I liked that I never took off. Black jeans. I'm losing my sense of uh, when these things happened in my life. How old are you? I'm 54. Right, I'm 55. And I, you know, and I've been through a lot of shoes. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. There's that... Uh, but, like, I really committed to them. You? Yeah, uh, and I was always I always wore cowboy boots in college, and then I continued to wear them when I went to grad school. And, yeah, and I met a I, I met my wife in grad school. Yeah, and she's from San Antonio, Texas. Oh yeah, and she said, uh, "You've got to stop with the pointy boots." <laughs> no, it's silly. And uh, oh. and she said, 
you need to wear ropers, uh-huh. and they need to have a round toe. And I came around to that way of thinking, and um, that's what I wear now. Oh, so that's a round toe. That's a round toe and a roper heel. I have a rounded toe now and some Chelsea's. Well, uh, you should try Lucchese's because it's the most comfortable boot you'll ever put on your feet. Do you get them? Do you get them custom made? Well, uh, no, I don't. Yeah. Now Lucchese's, um, by definition, are handmade. I get it. And the, this pair I got um, because uh, I was doing uh, the first costume fitting for Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Yeah. And Mary Zofries, the incredible costume designer. Of, yeah. All the Coen Brothers movies mm-hmm. uh, said, uh, "Well, what you know? Let's talk about the boots." And I said, "Well, just get you know a pair of Lucchese ropers. Those, yeah, that's the most accurate for this character. Is it? Yeah. So they've been around that long. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she said, uh, "All right." And she got a pair. Yeah. And Joel looked at them and said, "No, those are all wrong. We need they need to be white boots uh. with a brown tip, and they need to go with the white suit." Uh-huh. And so. Mary uh, allowed these to fall off the truck, and I picked them up, and now I'm wearing them. I tell you, man, I, if things don't fall off the truck, I'm not sure I'd have a wardrobe. If I had not, <laughs> I, I did a show, my show on IFC for four years, and I, I think I wore three or four shirts and maybe two pairs of pants. That's all I wore. And they got a sense of my style and wardrobed me, and I took all of it. And I'm wearing, the, this is one of the shirts I'm wearing now. Oh, that's I would, fantastic. I would not have clothes had I not had a television show. Yeah, that's, um, I, I did a movie years ago called Syriana. Yeah, oh, uh, uh, I like that movie. Yeah, Steve Gagan uh, wrote and directed it. You were a, you were a congressman. Uh, I was you, a lobbyist. A lobbyist, yeah. that's right. Yeah, and See, the, Jeffrey Wright was a congressman, was he, he not? You know, he was uh, He was a lobbyist as oh, well. Okay, right. And we were, um, and well, he was a DA. Okay, that's it. Um, or a federal prosecutor. Uh-huh. Um, and so, uh, and I was the fall guy, and he had a scene where he dressed me down. Um, and I gave a speech about capitalism to him. That's right. Uh, but, but, uh, but then he just sort of uh, took me out. Um, and uh, I was given um four suits yeah (laughs) Yeah. in that movie that were uh and they were tailored by the guy who tailors the suits for the senate Uh uh-huh senators yeah so i walked off with more value in the suits than i was paid to do the movie (laughs) i was allowed to yeah it's so nice when they let you do it isn't it yeah like i had suits from a show for years i don't i don't really know how to uh to shop for my, I know how to shop for myself, but I get exhausted very quickly when I go shopping. Yeah, I, I, I um, I do too. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and but eventually, my wife just said, "It's got to end the the being dressed. You're not your characters. <laughs> You're you, and it has to stop." Was that a challenge for you to identify what exactly that meant? Like, well, I'm you, like, do you trust your taste? Uh, you know, I trust my wife's taste, uh, and <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I just, you know, uh, a lot of uh, being a husband is, and and trying to sustain that is about being the best version um, that she uh, wants you to yes, be. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, without uh, it, 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 with always being true to yourself. Sure. Uh, and so um, it has worked out just fine. Uh huh. And it, let's talk about that. Uh, I just I watched Buster Scruggs a few days ago, so it's fresh in my head. As are, are a few of your roles, but that one, that movie um, is stunning and relentless in the way that, like, y- you know, it, it is. Uh, 
the, there are the what are there five chapters or six? Six. Six chapters, basically med you know, existential meditations, that uh, and lessons that uh, that uh, are are, are uh, not bleak, but uh, they don't end happily. They don't. Uh, <laughs> it definitely, uh, you definitely know that, that Ethan Cohen studied philosophy uh, and that he read a lot of Schopenhauer. Yeah. Uh, and also that Joel and Ethan are stooped, uh, steeped in the Old Testament. That's right. And what, now, what is Schopenhauer known for? Uh, the shorthand of it is that uh, life is nasty, brutish, brutish and short. Uh, and also... Um, he had the thesis um, in the will to live uh, that even um, the what what most recommends life uh, s uh, stuff like happiness and yeah. particularly love yeah. is all just a dupe yeah. uh, to try to get us to um, perpetuate uh, the species uh -huh. uh, because why else um, without love why would we want to perpetuate misery. <laughs> Uh, and so even love I like is the a show dupe. Yeah. I, 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 like, I never know which philosophers to read. I was trying to plow through Spinoza, but maybe Schopenhauer is more up my alley. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Uh, uh, Spinoza is a lawnsman, though. So, yeah, you know. that's right. Um, Absolutely. You know, that's one of the reasons you gravitate towards him. They're, they're, he's, a, he, you know, he's, he's part of the tribe, and he's, he's got a, a sort of a, a elaborate dialogue with God. Yes. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, the 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 stories are definitely um, are definitely bleak, but I think uh, there's a tenderness. No, no, they're beautiful. I mean, everything is poetry with those guys, you, you know. And and I don't know, you know, how they work, but you know, you open the movie, you're you're the namesake of the film. And uh, what I liked about about your story was that uh, you're very affable, likable, sympathetic. You sing, you dress nice, and then out of nowhere, you're like, "Holy fuck, that guy can do that!" Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's the Cohen. Yeah. I mean, I think that they, they, um, if you look across their whole filmography, I think that uh, they are always um, pointing out that as soon as an audience, or in particular, and most interestingly and intriguingly, a character feels like yeah. he or she has it all figured out, uh, there's going to be calamity. That's right. They've been doing that since the beginning. They have. Right, where where you're just sort of like, oh, now what happens? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I think that that's, that's part of their Old Testament ethos, because one of the reasons that... Uh, the Jewish religion um, is so centered on law and uh, ritual and tradition and the interpretation of text uh, is that life is chaotic. It's completely unpredictable. It's tragic. Uh, it's futile to try and, and control it. But yeah. but you do your best. Yeah. Uh, I used to do a joke in my act about uh, in Christianity the, the saying is that what is it the wages of sin is death, and in Judaism the wages of sin are negotiable. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just have to have an active conversation with the Almighty. It seems like there's a constant conversation going in the Old Testament. 
Yeah. And, uh, but with not necessarily explanation, but there's a conversation. Yes, exactly. Um, but uh, he's a pretty vengeful uh, p- uh, patriarch. Uh, yeah, Hashem. vengeful. <laughs> Uh, and also uh, just, uh, you know, uh, uh, impulsive. I, I, I don't, you know, you know, when you when you, I was just talking about Job the other day, because I have a friend who is Job like it's just sort of like that came out of nowhere for that guy. Yeah. So if my understanding of it is correct, it's just sort of like, what did I do? Nothing. You know, just I you know, bored, you know, like God just decided. Yeah. And um, and and you kind of in the end get the impression, uh, just like with the Pharaoh, um it's yeah all right uh sure you want to give in but now i'm going to harden your heart Uh, so you're not going to give in and so there are going to be more plagues and i think with with job uh uh it's as much so that he can be an example and be written about yeah yeah he he was using him as a protagonist he's like i need a story you're going to take the hit yes (laughs) Did you did you study religion or is it a prerequisite when you do a Coen Brothers movie that uh, you get you get up to snuff on the Old Testament philosophy? Well, uh, growing up, I was um, uh, I was bar mitzvahed at a very conservative uh, temple in Tulsa. Like, okay, so there for me, like this this is all new information. I I did a little bit of research. I don't do a lot. And uh, I had no idea. Uh, that uh, you were a Jew, I had no idea that uh, you know I you know I was a Jew in Albuquerque, but I, I certainly thought like well, uh, I I didn't uh, place a Jewish community in Tulsa in my mind. I, I thought that I, I I know that we've spread out, but I had no idea. Like I knew the Jews in El Paso, I knew the Jews in Houston. We used to do USY together, but I didn't know the <laughs> Jews in Oklahoma. <laughs> We were there. Um, How many, really? uh, The community in Tulsa when I was growing up was about 10,000. Now, let's go back now. So how do Jews get to Tulsa? Interestingly enough, uh, if you've been, as I know you are, because you're who you are uh, and do what you do, you read the news. And so you know what HIAS is. Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. And they've been in the news lately because uh, they've been under siege by the, um, the far right. Uh, and, it, and part of the the horrible massacre in uh, Pittsburgh was uh, aimed at them. Yes, yeah. that's exactly right. Uh, and so, um, what Hias uh, used to be, and there's something very different now, um, which is also quite intriguing. Uh, but they used to um, help Jewish immigrants, exclusively Jewish immigrants, pretty much exclusively Jewish in, in, immigrants, coming into this country help them settle. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they did was when there were unaffiliated families coming in to New York City. Uh, What's unaffiliated mean? They they had no affiliation. Oh, in the country. Yeah, in the right. country. Okay. Uh, so they were just coming to the U.S. with no antecedent yeah. um, relatives. Uh, and um, they would spread them out into the country. Mm-hmm. They would say, look, you're going to go to Cincinnati. You're going to go to Tulsa. You're going to go to El Paso. And the reason for this was so that they would be less vulnerable to roundups because they figured if they didn't do that, the Jews would congregate in the cities. So so the idea was, look, it's going to happen again. Yes. It always happens. So this is the diaspora. Is that what you would call it? Yes. Uh, the American diaspora is that uh, we're going to be logical about this. If we're going to survive. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so when my mother and her parents 
um, emigrated out of Europe, in, immigrated into the U.S., uh-huh. uh, their sponsors had been placed in Tulsa by Hyas. Interesting. So did they were they running from where they were from, or what, where, where they, did they just decide to come here? Uh, my mother and her parents, yeah, Holocaust refugees. Refugees, so they not were, survivors, but refugees. Yeah, running from so displaced they, because so of they the got out yeah. before, right before Kristallnacht, and then they they got to London. And um, now, were you old enough to know these your grandparents very well? Yeah, my my maternal grandmother and grandfather have, have had tremendous uh, influence over over me. And and did you talk to them about leaving Germany, uh, or wherever they were? Uh, Endlessly. Yeah. Where, where were they? Uh, well, uh, in the end, they were in uh, Rostock. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my my um, my grandfather, uh, his name was Herman Kaiser. Uh, he, From Kaiser Permanente? No. <laughs> another <laughs> no, Kaiser? No, another Kaiser. Mm-hmm. Uh he um, and not from the Kaiser Family Foundation either. But, uh, but another uh, what, what business was he in? Oil business, eventually. Oil in Oklahoma. That yeah. was a good business. Yes, I'd imagine very good when business. he got into that business. He did very well. Yeah. Um, but he uh, he was a lawyer mm-hmm. in Germany. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, at the time of the Nuremberg Laws in 1935, he uh, was allowed to continue practicing, even though the Nuremberg Laws did disbar all Jewish lawyers. And it just so happened that he was representing the um, German government uh, in a case uh, involving Sergei Eisenstein, the Russian filmmaker. The film, yeah, uh, Potemkin. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so he continued to practice, but then once that case was over, he was disbarred. And so they moved, he and his wife, my grandmother, uh, moved uh, to Rostock, where her father had, um, he made orthopedic shoes and brushes mm-hmm. uh, in a factory called Emsaworks. In Rostock, yeah, which is a part of the former East Germany, and then they got out right before uh, Kristallnacht and went to England, and then from England during the war, they came to the U.S. When you talk to them, like you know, sadly, uh, as a Jew um, myself. I'm not sad to be a Jew, but uh, but you know you you ask these questions, and I asked them very quickly upon uh, the incoming administration a couple of years ago. It's like, will we know when to go? Did you ever talk to them about that? I did, uh, and my grandfather, um, who was uh, politically very conservative, mm-hmm. and who was staunchly pro-American, uh, and very grateful of this country essentially said, I don't want to hear from anti-Semitism from you. Uh, it, it, you. You have no idea. And it's not going to happen in this country. It doesn't happen in this country. We're fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was that. And I have to say that growing up in Tulsa, and I don't know what your experience was in New Mexico, in New Mexico but I never encountered uh, anti-Semitism in Tulsa, except very infrequently if there was somebody who came in from uh, the either Chicago there was a kid from Chicago who moved to uh, to Tulsa um, or a kid from New York 
but it was always somebody coming into Tulsa who moved there, and I'd hear this and that. Nothing really that nothing serious. attacking. There yeah. was no sort of you know uh, sort. Uh, you, you never felt a movement. Not at all. In Oklahoma, in fact, um, there was uh, not only um, benign curiosity about what our community was up to, but I would say um, we were treated almost as uh, exotic. Yeah. Uh, in in a in a lovely way. Why well, I, I I experienced I guess it would be more slightly. It, it was a little worse than benign. I, and it was oddly, I think, the first time that I ever experienced it was at camp. And I think it might have been a kid from Oklahoma or someplace uh, more cowboy-ish. But I, he had never seen a Jew before. Mm-hmm. So there was there were questions. Right. Like literally those horrible sort of like you don't have horns type of questions. Oh, well, that's not good. So, <laughs> yeah. So, like, you know, he was brought up with something. And I, and I think he was pleasantly surprised that I was just a, a, an annoying kid. There is a friend of mine who was uh, overheard this at a uh, a wedding in Texas. Uh, uh, there were some some Jews at the end of the table and uh, at, at a wedding. Yeah, and um, and he he overheard a woman saying, "Well, well, uh, who are they?" And then the other person said, "Oh, uh, they're." Uh, some of them that killed our Lord. Oh yeah. Well yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if he if he doesn't uh, die, they don't have much of a story. <laughs> <laughs> See, there you go. Back full circle. Yeah. But but so how many siblings you got? I have uh, a sister and two brothers. Older? But all older, yes. Oh, you're the youngest. Yeah. So now okay, so your your grandfather was in the oil business. That's a pretty rough business. So now when like like the the guy what do they call wildcatters or yeah yeah mm-hmm. so was your old man in the oil business as well yes yeah yeah what, what was and his he role? got into it well he worked for my grandfather for a while mm-hmm. um, and because my grandfather's um, son uh, blood son my uncle was also in the company my my father thought well I'm never gonna be able to take this company over because of course it's going to be passed on to his son and that's that's as it should be uh and so he learned the business uh from his father-in-law and then eventually split off and formed a company of his own oil company yeah see this is one of those things where like i remember when i was like uh like there's some it's not romanticization but like i i worked in a deli when i was younger i grew up in new mexico right but i was uh, my my family's from jersey so i had a very a, a weird kind of desire to be an old jewish man all my life and i when i was in college one year i worked in a, a, a jewish deli in boston and i was always fascinated that you know that i met this whole generation of older jews who were who were plumbers cops firemen you know like and i was like Oh my God! Jews do these jobs because there's we, there's so many stereotypes. Like Jews don't know tools. Of course they know tools. We had to learn how to do everything just to get by. Yes, right? exactly. So it was always fascinating. But I've never heard of oil Jews, and, and this is the first. So I'm excited. You come from oil Jews. Yeah, well, oil and gas. I would oil say. and gas. Yeah, Jews. Natural gas. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, what did any of your siblings end up in the racket? Uh, my brother Randy yeah. uh, is is uh, took over my father's company. Oh, really? Yeah. So, and are your folks still around? Yes. Uh, my father lives in Connecticut, and my mother is still in Tulsa. Oh, really? Yeah. She stayed there. 
Yes, yeah. She's uh, went to she went to school in the east, uh, and then and then eventually went back to Tulsa. So she grew like she's full Oklahoman. They both are, right? Well, my mother was born in England, mm. raised for the first four years of her life oh, in before Germany. They came over here. Yeah. Oh, okay. So she was born in England. Then she and um, my uh, grandmother went and and grandfather went back to Germany because they they had her in England to help them get out. Mm-hmm. My grandfather was very, very schooled in history and very schooled in politics. The and, lawyer. Yeah. And he understood that this was not going to be a good place uh, for Jews. And Germany. So, yeah. After, after 32, 33, he knew. So he wasn't part of the crew of Jews that were like, we can work with this Hitler. No, he wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there were some. Yes, I know. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had her and then, so they had her in England and yeah. went back Yeah, and then my grandfather left first and my grandmother tried to stay with my mother and he eventually wrote a telegram that said either send the kid or both of you come. Yeah. He knew. Yeah. It's time to go. Yeah. And so then they finally got out and then they were in England for a couple of years and then crossed the Atlantic. So did you marry a Jew? I married a Mexican-American Catholic. Oh, my and, dad ended up with a Mexican-American Catholic. That's uh, interesting. Yeah, it's great. Um, uh, but she converted. Really? She converted, and uh, it's interesting. Um, and and uh, she's now, as as often can be the case. More uh, Jewish than you are. Yeah, she's, she's um, <laughs> zealous uh-huh. about it uh-huh. um, in, in a great way. Uh-huh. Uh, and I made this movie called The Gray Zone uh-huh. uh, years ago, uh, which really shook my faith um, to a pretty profound degree. Really? Uh, yeah. It, how so? Uh, well, it's a Holocaust film, mm-hmm. uh, and it's about the Zonderkommandos, um, who were Jews in the camps who were forced or coerced into, depending on how you want to look at uh-huh. it or the particular exper- situation, into aiding in the extermination process in exchange for privileges and, sure. most importantly, uh, extended life in the camp. Mm. Um, so, and, so a light, fun film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and my research into that, and which was thousands and thousands of pages, and, and particularly reading Primo Levi. Oh, The uh, uh, Surviving in Auschwitz? Yeah. That's a hell of a book. Yeah. And The Drowned and the Saved also. Mm. Uh, and there's a chapter in there from which the movie borrows its its title, uh, the Gray Zone. Uh, it it really it really shook my faith. Uh, what about seriously. it? Like, were you your faith in the sense that you know in 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 what being Jewish meant, or your your personal faith in God, or or just uh, in in humanity? Uh, in God, there's the the classic Levy line: "If there is a God, there could be no Auschwitz." Mm-hmm. Um, and the converse of that is is the answer um, furnished by one's faith, which is Auschwitz um, is why there's a God by way of finding some meaning for our suffering. Hmm. Um, but I tend toward the former. Yeah, still not the latter. Yeah, although I went from being an atheist to the wimpier position of being an agnostic. Right, you're hedging your bets. 
Yeah, uh, there was a there was a thinker. Why draw lines when we can stay in the wiggle room of maybe? I think though, uh, yes, that that's probably really it. But I think the more I learn, the more I learn what's possible. And so, how could I say that it's impossible that there be a God? Um, I think more the question is what would Jesus constitute do? God? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what would Jesus do? <laughs> <laughs> it's the easier path. Yeah. No, what would constitute God? Right. Yeah. I it, think it, that's the better question. It's certainly not in, he did not make man in his own image. That no, I don't think happened. No, he could, yeah, he could have done much better. Yeah. <laughs> so you were not uh, brought up in Tulsa uh, Orthodox, but just, you know, conservative and, yeah, pretty serious um, religious education in a sense, but I don't know if what your experience was, but mostly it involved learning to read Hebrew. Yeah, right. You go to Hebrew school, I think, like, you know, Wednesdays and that, and Sundays, uh, and then when it, you know, when, when it came to, you know, uh, prep time, you met with the cantor, you know, you learned the alphabet, you learned how to read Hebrew, you didn't know necessarily how to translate hebrew you knew some key words it depends i guess what a better what kind of student you were but you when it came to crunch time you know you sat with the cantor you learned your haftorah you learned the songs you did the show and then you go to confirmation but i bailed oh you did i didn't All get right. confirmed i did the bar mitzvah and i was out we didn't have confirmation oh. because that was construed as as being too conspicuously catholic in the terminology oh uh but Right in the in the couple of years before being bar mitzvah, we were at uh, the synagogue six days a week. Really? Yeah, yeah. After school, after school, uh, four days a week, and then and then we would go to to Shabbos services on Saturday um, with with our mother, uh, and then we went to Sunday school. So that was uh, for real. I mean, you were yeah. doing it. You were. But I in. didn't. Re- but I didn't understand Hebrew. I just could read it. Right. And so subsequently, uh, actually after college, I thought, well, this is ludicrous. I've never read the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so um, I read it. In Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> so you still don't know what it meant. <laughs> exactly. Which is the way to read the Bible. And then um, I've read a lot of the New Testament as well now. Uh, so... Ipso post facto, uh, <laughs> or post facto, uh, I, I, I got, I started really to, to learn about the faith. Your siblings uh, religious? Did they get more religious or less religious, or does anybody go full full bore? No, not really. My sister uh, would be the closest, but but she's, uh, uh, I think she had her kids uh, bought and bar mitzvah. What what were some of the uh, now? This is like uh, we should get into uh, arts in a minute. But like what like in Tulsa because like Tulsa, you know that that's rodeo ta- that's rodeo country. It's seriously serious cowboy country, really Oklahoma. Yes, and indigenous people country. Yes, in a big way. So what what were some of um, I'd like to know some some Oklahoman Jewish dishes. <laughs> well, my my wife likes to say, "Yeah, Tim, you come from uh, you come from Tulsa, Oklahoma. You come from the Upper West Side of Tulsa." Mm-hmm. Uh, well, look, um, I, I have to say, uh, 
people think um, about Oklahoma as ranching and cattle country, and you can get a good steak in Oklahoma. Sure. And that's absolutely true, but the best steakhouses in Oklahoma are Lebanese steakhouses. Now or always? They were when I was growing up. But what about like uh, Jewish food in the house? Was there any hybrids of uh, like sort of uh, something unique? Because like everyone has their own take on that stuff. Uh, like on holidays, was it the standard stuff? Kugel, brisket, that kind of stuff? No, I mean, I, and, and yeah, that's, that's funny. We never had, I think it was funny, we never had turkey on Thanksgiving uh-huh. uh, because um, uh, my grandmother um, and my mother, they would serve either uh, goose mm-hmm. or, uh, or duck. So it's like aristocratic German stuff. It was stuff. aristocratic German stuff. That's exactly right. Huh. And it and it and it felt, again, I'll use the word, um, wonderfully exotic. And that is exotic. It was great to feel different um, in, we, in Oklahoma. I bet, and also different as Jews because, like, I I had to learn. You know, th- there's a whole aristocratic German Jews are a whole other ball of wax, dude. From from the sort of run of the mill Ashkenazi Russian Polish peasant <laughs> Jewish stock, that there was a, there was a whole class of Jews that were prim- fun, primarily German aristocratic German Jews who looked at those other Jews, you know, as sort of ghetto people. That was that is completely accurate, and, yeah. and I am. Uh, 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 I come from that, <laughs> half from that stock. Uh, but my mother married a, a Russian Jewish. Uh, there you go. Under- but the German Jews were all from the Pale of Settlement as well. Mm-hmm. They're all Ashkenazi. No, I get that. I get that. But something like there, something happened in Germany that that elevated uh, many of them in business and everything else. And yeah, that, the that's assimilation. Why that's why they were such a threat, I guess, to Hitler. Is that yeah. they they ran everything? Well, you know, yeah, manufacturing. The legal uh, profession, like, right? Like, there was a, they they had a stronghold because I guess, this is the other thing, and this is getting not abstract, but, you know, relevant in that, this idea of, you know, in, in anti-Semitic American language now, that there's some sort of entitlement that Jews get. It's just, it's just that Jews out of necessity had to put a premium on education and figuring out how to fit into structures that were inherently against them in order to succeed. So, you, you know, they, they, this idea that, that Jews have somehow gotten a, an easy ride, is, it drives me nuts. Yeah, or, <laughs> I mean, I see Philip Roth on the shelf uh, in back of you. Uh, Great. And um, one of my favorite writers as well. Uh, and... Um, he there's a beautiful monologue in one it's a searing monologue in one of his books about uh how Jews got into the business of money yeah which oh, right, was yeah. in the middle ages or the middle ages renaissance yeah, or the middle Christians ages. weren't allowed to right. handle money and yeah. so it was something that the Jews could do yeah and they were they weren't yeah their religion wouldn't let them and yeah it was a way to wedge their way into having a life well, okay, so this is a guy. Are, are you nervous? Am I nervous as a Jew right now? Uh, no. Okay. I, 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 no. I'm, I, well, actually, that's not true. Uh, I think if I were to go to shul, mm-hmm. I would be nervous. Oh, just like because of right, yeah, security. So I think security. places where Jews congregate, mm-hmm. and I also happen to live in New York City, uh, which until so very the, recently the had more Jews yeah. than Israel. Yeah. 
Um, so in that respect, I'm nervous because I do know that fanatics want to kill Jews. Right. Um, but fanatics want to kill Christians too. Yeah, and some fanatics just want to kill anybody. Yes. Yeah, and they're not really focused in their fanaticism. It's just a <laughs> mental illness. Yes. So where does uh, so you're growing up there on the up in the Upper West Side of Tulsa? Um, did you have experience with? Uh, I, I don't know why. You know, just because you're in a, a Western right now, but because the the, uh, the sort of struggle for Indigenous people in Oklahoma must have been something on the radar. Yes, for you uh, growing it, that's up, that's manifest. Yeah, it was. I think more manifest when I was growing up. Um, I see less uh, Native Americans yeah. around Tulsa. For some reason, I don't quite know why, but when I visit, than I used to. Right. Uh, but yeah, certainly um, uh, one saw that. Yeah. But I think what I've experienced when I've been in New Mexico uh, is actually more integration than I have experienced in Oklahoma. With uh, with with Native Americans? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I see more of that really um, in, in New Mexico where the architecture, uh, the cuisine, yeah. and the look of the people mm-hmm. is so inflected with that combination of Mesoamerica and Spain. Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, than it is in Tulsa. Sure. Um, because Tulsa was a place, or Oklahoma was a place where Native Americans were relocated. Right, They were not indigenous to the place. Oh, right, so that was where they put them. Yes, as opposed to New Mexico and to a a certain extent, Arizona. Sure, Navajo Nation. Yeah, Yeah. and now my my children have Native American blood because my wife is Mexican-American, and that's, again, that that exact mix of Spain and uh, Native, uh, Native Indian. So how does it like you know this is all I, I think uh, fascinating for me because like I I had no idea anything about you and now that we have this uh, uh, interesting Jewish story going, but how does uh, how does it start that you become involved with uh, acting? Well, I enjoyed doing it in high school, yeah, um, uh, and particularly also in junior high, but, yeah, uh, and. Um, and then I went off to college. Where'd you uh, go to college? Brown University. Oh, uh, Brown. Hmm. And I, <laughs> and I, uh, I was a classics major in college, and I figured I was gonna uh, do uh, do like um, Paul said to the Corinthians and put away childish things. Uh, and well, I was were you gonna, gonna do be a, pro- a, be a professor? Yeah, be a professor. Brown's a good school. I, I just know a lot of people. It's sort of like of the Ivy Leagues. It's the uh, it's the arty one. That's 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 the way to describe it. My buddy Sam Lipsight went there. He's a great, great writer. Oh, the writer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just saw him in New York. And, uh, you know, he, I think he's younger than us. But, uh, yeah, he went there, and he, and he was there with a whole crew of, uh, you know, uh, rock and roll children and, you know, you know, like celebrity. Yeah. There's a big celebrity children presence when he was there. Yeah. When I was there, Amy Carter was just coming in. Sure. There you go. Uh, and, and Walter Mondale's kid was mm-hmm. there and uh, John John Kennedy, um, John, John, John F. Kennedy's son. May he rest in peace. So it was a lot of political uh, left-wing uh-huh. politicians. Uh, and kids. you're doing the classic thing. So you're, are, you yeah. re- are you reading Latin and stuff? Latin, yeah. Oh, no kidding. No Greek, just Latin. So you can, yeah. how's your Latin? Good? Yeah, it's rusty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> better than Hebrew? <laughs> yeah, it's much better than the Hebrew. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, 
And um, and then a lot of Greek uh, philosophy also. Uh-huh. Uh, there was a teacher I had there named Martha Nussbaum, uh-huh. um, and she was she was a great uh, influence over me. I took a bunch of courses with her, and then a lot of Latin courses, Roman history, uh, and yeah. I was I was. Um, uh, my mother came to visit me during uh, our um, during my freshman year mm-hmm. in the spring, and she said, "What are you going to do this summer?" And I said, uh, "I'm going to come back to Tulsa and get a job and hang out." Uh, and she she said, "Well, okay, that's great. I'd love to have you home." Um, and she had been divorced a few years before, and so she, I think, really liked the idea of and everyone's older than you yeah you're the youngest yeah yeah uh and so she said but but what do you want to do with your life no and i said uh i think i want to be a professor or or maybe an archaeologist and she said that that would be great nothing would make me happier than to have a son who's a professor or an archaeologist and devotes his life to letters archaeologist Um, yeah like an ancient ancient civilization so you were compelled to dig up the past yeah Mm mm-hmm uh, and, um, and she said, well, you know, um, I'd love for you to come home and I'd love to see you become a classicist, but you don't even have a girlfriend right now. So you're, <laughs> you're totally unaffiliated and you have no responsibilities. Yeah. You liked acting in high school. Yeah. Now is the time when you can just try anything. Oh, that was nice. So. Why don't you go get on with the summer theater this summer and and see if that doesn't still interest you or do something, but why play it safe and and come home? It's so funny that like playing it safe, like what be a classicist or an archaeologist, those are good secure positions, <laughs> you know. Like, yeah. But it, it it was interesting. Now looking back on that conversation. Do, do you think that she was just being nice about those things and she saw that your passion was elsewhere? I think she was being wise mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, and and giving me an incredible an incredible gift, one of many um, incredible gifts that uh, she gave to to my siblings and me. Um, so I went and was um, involved with the summer theater that that uh, in Oklahoma? No, in um, Pennsylvania. Uh, which one? How that? It go? was a. Uh, it was a um, a summer theater shared between Swarthmore, Haverford, and Bryn Mawr. Mm-hmm. And my mother had gone to Bryn Mawr, so uh-huh. she knew of this uh, this theater. Okay. Uh, and so um, uh, I had a great time. Um, what were you doing? Did uh, I did um, Real Inspector Hound uh, by Tom Stoppard. Um, we did Hay Fever by Noel Coward, and we did... Uh, a Lanford Wilson play called Fifth of July, and were you like? Uh, and I was, was acting. You and, were, small parts or no, nice parts, and it was a sort of a a, a collective that that it was a student run theater. Oh, so it was all young people. All young people. We lived together in a house. Right. I got a girlfriend that summer, oh. um, and uh, it just everything about it was great. And everybody's doing the painting and the building, and yeah, everybody's yes, it's, it's exactly a, right. The theater community, the lights, yeah, all yeah. of it, right. That's that's how it works. That's how that pe- people would seem to have that experience in in theater or start acting that way. Get a real appreciation for. Did for, you do it? No, but I've talked to many people, uh, or a few certainly, that their first experience was either in a Shakespearean company or 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 a some a, a situation where 
you you were part of it was learning the community of theater that's exactly right yeah and i and 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 funnily enough though and i was listening earlier to to your um your podcast with uh will farrell yeah uh i was also starting to do stand-up comedy at the time no yeah i could see that uh, i wasn't good i where'd just you was... do it well i did it in providence um at periwinkles that's exactly right <laughs> yeah at Periwinkles. And one performance I remember that was just incredible was uh, I saw Ricky, no, no, uh, not Ricky J. Is that right? Not the magician. No, no, I know who you're talking about. Billy J. Billy J. Sure. I was oh wondering what happened to that God, guy. God, he was funny. Short guy. Wore a yeah. hat. And screamed a lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he had a bit about, um, uh, what, he had a bit, uh, uh, why do we wear these uh, metal bowls on our head? Uh, it's because of the piddler, the piddler on the roof. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, but I was terrible. Um, I, was, I was just wondering about him the other day because there was a period in time there where he was, um, he got very bitter. As to, and, and most people don't know who Billy J is, but he was around New York. But he got cast. The thing that, that, stuck in his craw that that kind of did him in a bit i think was he was cast in that dustin hoffman movie called billy bathgate about the gangster oh. movie and he, he was almost entirely cut out of it and uh and he had very little in the movie and i think it just killed him because he, he used it as a credit for years but you go see the movie and it, it was just a passing presence and he got very you know he got very uh yeah he was an angry little man but it's so funny. That's the guy. It's, I love that. That that that's the memorable. But the thing. anger was funny. Oh yeah, no, he was. Yeah. Um, and I think it. You know, I so. Um, but I uh, and then I came out here. But wait, let's talk about stand up. So you're doing open mics at Periwinkles. No, and then I came out here and did stand up oh, okay. in L.A. for the summer. Oh really? Where where do Laugh we? Factory open um, mics? Open mics, and then I got on at the Laugh Factory. I was at the. I was basically, they put me on. Uh, I could come any night, and then I was just the bottom rung. So when it was just a hallway next to the old Chinese yeah, restaurant, yeah, Jamie Masada, sure. ran it. Well, he still owns it, but but oh. back then it was just like you walk in and you were in the room, right? Yeah, right. It that's was right. Like, he would sit there on the right, and then there would be this long room that was like the size of a hallway, in my recollection. Yeah. And if you had to go to the bathroom, you had to walk all the way down the side, and there was a door on the side of the stage. It was a tiny place before he built it out, and then in the and that old Chinese restaurant was still there. Like right next door. And, and Green Greenblatt, yeah, yeah, down the street. Yeah. And he, the so the guy who, so he owned it. Yeah. And the guy who, um, uh, the ombudsman was uh, Falstaff. Mm. It's this big. Yeah, the comic. Yeah, comic. Yeah, yeah I, mean, uh, I vaguely remember him. And he um, he would let me on, but but my God, Jamie hated it when I would go on. Was Fraser Smith hosting? Yeah. <laughs> and Falstaff. Yeah, right. Okay. And uh, and they would put me on. Yeah. Usually, I'd get there at around. I did. A, I had a day job out in. Um, this was uh, uh, the summer after, after the my. Uh, this was the summer after my sophomore year at. at so college. you were going for it. You wanted. You thought it might be the thing. Yes, uh, and I just <laughs> was derivative and not very good. Of who? And, Woody Allen. Um, no, Robin Williams. Oh, just so doing you... characters. But, oh yeah. But but but. Uh, and I, at the end of that summer, even though I, again, I, I, 
I would get there at around nine. I had a day job. I um, out in I uh, was worked at the Boulangerie in uh, this restaurant called the Boulangerie in Venice, uh-huh. uh, making sandwiches um, yeah. during the day. And then I would get to the Laugh Factory at about nine, and I would keep getting bumped mm-hmm. because I wasn't very good. Yeah. Uh, go on about one. Yeah. Yeah. Go on at about one for nine people. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and just wait and wait. Welcome and wait. to it. Well, yeah, comedy. and I never got past that rung. And Which I, is... at the end of the summer, I said, acting. That so I've done. I did stand up for a summer, and I did theater for a summer, and I'm not going to do anything to help the. I'm not doing anything new as a comedian. They're they're all. I would get to watch for three hours a night. Oh yeah, and it just chip away at your confidence, and you just like you just sit there and you yeah. watch the audience leave. <laughs> you watch all these big acts come on. Yeah, but they were really good, and I thought it chipped away at my confidence. But but at least for me. That wasn't the worst thing in the world, certainly not for the art of comedy. I wasn't going to end up developing, you know, like a, a, Lou Bra- a Lou Black persona or something. How do you, you know? know? I guess I don't know, but I'm pretty confident. Well, I, well, it's good that you understand the limitations of your talent. But like, you know, most of us who get into comedy, like, you know, they, we just plow on. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, it's like in my mind, you, you chose the more difficult path in a way. I think uh, stand-up comedy is the more difficult path. I actually do. I, I really, I, because I think that to stick with it, you you see, I mean, there was such there was such a grim side of life that I saw during um, many of those hours <laughs> and hanging out and you know one night, one night. Those are my people. But I, I, <laughs> I think that's a good thing. No, actually, no, I, yeah, I'm not taking it as an insult. We're all very proud of our grim side of life. I was one night. I was there, and I don't remember this comic's name, but he was really, really dry and funny and cynical. Uh-huh. Um, and he was a regular at the Laugh Factory. This would have been in 1984, uh, 84, 85. Yeah, there, um, Jewish guy, and. Uh, Really? In comedy? (laughs) And it's the end of the night, and I don't know why. He had shown up really late. Maybe he'd been at a couple of other clubs and stopped by the Laugh Factory at the end. And for whatever reason, I'm not quite sure why, um, he was kind of still around after I did the very last five minutes. And and so I'm walking out of the club, and I I, um, am walking up Laurel uh, to, to my car where I'd parked it. And there's this Asian woman who's just, she is just incapacitated by alcohol. I mm. mean, she's just stumbling, stumbling Shit drunk. faced Yeah, really bad. Yeah. And she's trying to negotiate the key into the car door. Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think, well, this is, this is not good. And I said, ma'am, can, may, I, may I help you? And she's, she's sort of uh, 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 mumbles back at me and again clearly not a good situation and I thought well I can't let this woman drive I've got to wait here and just I I don't know what I'm going to do and this is before cell phones so then this comic comes out and he stops and he's studying the situation he's not saying anything and I turn to him and I say we can't let we can't let her drive and he says well 
well, what do you want to do? You want a roller or you want a fucker? <laughs> and I said, I, no, neither, neither. I I I I want to call the police, and you know, and he he you want uh, a helper. Yeah, I want a helper. <laughs> yeah, and he wasn't serious. Right. Um, but the it was such grim. It was such exquisitely grim. Just the darkest of the dark humor uh-huh. uh, in the context of one thirty in the morning and this woman, and she was actually kind of pretty, which uh-huh. made it even worse. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, and I thought I'm really uh, grateful to be exposed to these people and this world. Uh, <laughs> that's what did it. That's yeah. what simultaneously made you grateful and get out. Yeah, and I thought I've got a. I've got. I'm. I'm not gonna. Um, this is not going to be good for me. To... You're not going to do that to yourself. Yeah. You're not going to become a dark, cynical <laughs> fucking monster. You, you had too much heart, kiddo. You realized at that moment, I'm like, oh my God, these people, there's no, there's no bottom to this. Yeah, I don't want to hurt my heart that much. And I think that's probably, and I think that's probably true. And that's why you guys are so damn funny. Yeah, yeah, and also, but, you know, there is a line that one rides. I mean, you know, with, with comedy and with, uh, you know, w- and certainly back then, you, you know, there was a, a kind of uh, ethic to it that, you know, you kind of really pushed the envelope of, of what was funny and what isn't funny and, and you know, how dark can you be and how dark can you get. And, and also there's the, the natural kind of evolution of, of forcing yourself to be funny that to, to the point where, as a comic, you get jaded and cynical enough that you know only the the most dark things are funny, and uh, and and I do think that if you do not if you're not compelled to callous your heart like that, I mean I think all comics are sensitive, but they're certainly con- con- in a very complex way, uh, very you know, deeply well guarded. I think that's absolutely true, and and, and certainly true of the best of them. Yeah. Um, and and uh, they can be vulnerable, but uh, probably you know, you know, on stage, just from my own personal experience, I I can, you know, I can be vulnerable, but you know, in real life, you know, the 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 price you pay for being vulnerable to an audience, uh, you know, in that way, uh, you know, it, it does your personal life doesn't necessarily reflect that all the time. Yeah, um, I, I, I um, seem like a sweet I, guy. Yeah. I hope I am. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and I think that comic was a sweet guy. Sure. Um, I think a really, really uh, sweet guy and also smart as all get out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's very difficult to be smart and sweet at the same time. And, and funny. Yeah. Um, that's what I admire. I mean, not to, I don't want to switch subjects because I love what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, that's that's the key to Joel and Ethan. Um, uh, when people say that Joel and Ethan are cold as filmmakers, um, I, I, I want to set myself ablaze. I'm so upset uh, because um, I, I, they're anything but. There's such um, uh, generosity and warmth in their generous in in their exposure of of their take on the world 
Sure. I, I think that, like, when I've talked to people about them, I, I, I it sounds, my interpretation was not so much that they were cold, but they know exactly what they want. And, and I think maybe to an actor that might come off as, uh, uh, to some, as, as confining somehow. Well, except that they know so clearly what they want that they've prepared to an extent uh, and they have such control um, that on the day when you're shooting, you actually never have more freedom mm. as an actor than when you're on their set because there's no castigation. You can fail, and they have the time for that, and they have the patience for that, and they've given you a role, and this is whatever role you're playing in one of their movies, even if you have but a day. Mm -hmm. uh, they've given you a role um, that is such an invitation for what I like to call front-footed acting, uh, making a bold choice, um, that you just gravitate toward... Uh, that 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 kind of risk taking, um, and only on a, a, a set like theirs, where everything is so under control um, and meticulously planned and so carefully written, uh, can you have the space to be able to take those chances? Because nobody is um, uh, fretting over whether they're going to run out of time or what the next shot is going to be. Right. It's great. And in, in, in terms of front-footed acting and also in terms of this, uh, this new movie, uh, which is Six Stories, you know, they, 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 their love of people who are able to, to do what you're calling front-footed acting, they, these sort of bold character actors um, that are very specific, I find, uh, it, they seem to have a true passion for yeah, I'm, I'm. You know, I. So many of us. Uh, uh, so many of the great character actors. So I'll leave myself out. Um, but if you think about John Goodman and Turturro and Fran, uh, Francis McDormand, Holly Hunter, uh, Steve Buscemi, uh, Michael Stuhlbarg, Stephen Root, who've not so much Stephen Root, who had his own career before he met them. Yeah. Uh, but the others I'm describing. Started uh, with them. Really did. Yeah. And, and, and I can say for myself, who was going to put me in a lead role? I mean, I, I was doing fine as an actor, uh, yeah. working a lot off Broadway and doing what I like to call a hallway part uh, in a movie every year uh, where you accompany the lead down a hallway and deliver a bit of information that he yeah. needs while he's getting from point A to point B. I and just then did you one leave. of those. Oh, good. Literally, good I did literally did a hallway scene with uh, Robert De Niro two oh, weeks fantastic. ago. Oh, fantastic. Oh, in the- uh, In the, the Joker movie. Oh, wow. Oh, great. It was, but it was literally a walk and talk down uh, backstage in a hallway situation. Did you like it? Yeah. Well, I mean- That's fantastic. It was, it, was, uh, it was my first experience on a real big movie. You'll be in a Coen Brothers movie in no time. I would love to. <laughs> yeah. I don't, know, I don't know that I know how to do that type of character work. Well, that's interesting. I, I, I uh, who knows? I don't know enough about you, but uh, I do know that they, they do gravitate toward, um, toward actors who've had classical training, mm -hmm. uh, because to do their, to do their language, uh, I, I, I think there's there's the need for a facility with that. Um, 
But then there are others who uh, who fit gorgeously into their world uh, who don't. But uh, in the really talkative characters. But it's interesting that, you know, in what you're talking about, front-footed and, and character acting, is that in the one story where James Franco plays the lead, who and he's not essentially, I mean, I think he can do anything. I think he's mm-hmm. a fine actor. But he's not I, innately the type of actor that Stephen Root is, or maybe even that you are in terms of your training or in terms of, having a, a broad spectrum of character, you know, potential. Yeah, I mean, James is more of an autodidact as right, an actor. Right, So, But, but he's can, been serious about that pursuit. No, 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 yeah. I, I, I like him, but it was interesting. You can see the difference, not just between him and Stephen Root, the primary other character, but even the guys that ride up on horses are so chiseled and defined, you know, yeah. just in their presence of character, you know, against him. It's very, it's an interesting... I notice this a lot, uh, you know, in doing Glow too. That you know, Betty Gilpin comes from the New York School of Theater actresses, and Alison Brie is very much a product of Los Angeles. And I see there's different approaches, you yeah. know, and they can fit. Well, they fit great together sometimes, but there's difference. There's a difference. Yeah, you're completely right. So, where did you train? Uh, I went to Juilliard. Um, oh, the real that. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. The whole thing? Yeah, you did the whole four thing? years. I went to. I went to four years of college and then four years of acting school. So I did not get out of school till I was twenty six. Julia, it's hard, man. Yeah, it's a pretty, pretty. Uh, I mean, they're pretty, they're 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 heartless and they're cutting. Well, uh, not so much anymore. Oh. But when we were there, um, uh, my wife and I, and I was in class with. Um, I was in the same year as Laura Linney, wonderful mm-hmm. actress. She's uh, great. Uh, and um, Jeannie Triplehorn. Oh uh, yeah, New York theater actor named David Aaron Baker. Um, uh, another actor named Jake Weber. Um, so, you know, I was in a, a, a an interesting. It was a good time to be there, but it was brutal. And so you did all of it. You did the uh, you did uh, sword fighting, Alexander technique, singing, dancing, dance, yeah, yeah, uh, good speech. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, we even had comedy class. Oh, who taught that? Uh, a guy named Harold Stone, a miserable man. Uh, no, <laughs> he was great. But you know, it's an incredible thing happened. So Robin so. Williams went. Did to, you do mask work? Yes, uh-huh. I loved mask work. That was one of my favorite classes. You know everything, man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, mask work was great. Animal was, work. Uh, yes, we did a bit of that. Yeah, mm. first year. Mm-hmm. Um, but Robin Williams went to Juilliard. Yeah, and uh, and so the guy who they, taught, they wanted him out. Well, it was uh, it was an issue, a money issue, uh-huh. um, and uh, and so then he formed a scholarship. Robin uh, did. Robin gave a scholarship to Juilliard for anybody who couldn't afford to come back to, if and and uh, and my wife got that scholarship. Oh, yeah, Robin. She, we did a movie together, Robin and I, um, and uh, and my wife came to visit, and she was able to say thank you, oh. which was a great. He must right have moment. loved it. He's a, he's a sweet guy, man. Oh. He was a sweet guy. What movies uh, you do with him? It was called um, The Big White. Mm. It was with uh, Robin and, and Holly Hunter um, and uh, Giovanni Ribisi, Allison Lohman. And we were all up in Alaska together. Um, and what I, were you going to say about him? Oh, I was going to say that... Uh, so, so there was the teacher of the comedy course... Uh, in a in in an admirably self-deprecating speech at the beginning of the course said look i'm teaching this course but i'm not going to claim to be funny um i've taught a lot of people in this course and some of them have 
have didn't end up uh, being particularly funny. Um, but I did teach Robin Williams in this course. Uh-huh. Uh, but I'm not going to claim that he wasn't funny beforehand. All right. So then Robin Williams comes uh, to speak to us. Uh-huh. And this student named Peter Jacobson in, in my wife's class uh, raises a hand and he wants to throw a softball to Robin so that Robin can praise this comedy teacher. Uh-huh. And he said, how did you like the comedy class? We hear you took the comedy class. And Robin, as only Robin could do, uh, just went on this monologue about how ridiculous it would be to try to teach comedy and how he had never been in a comedy class. And he just went on and on and on. And it was so Was Stone in the room? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but it was a good class. <laughs> it was a great class. I loved the class. Uh, he talks, uh, Itzkoff in his Robin biography, uh, he talked a, a lot about his time at uh, Juilliard. It's interesting how difficult, you know, because he was there with uh, Chris Reeves and yeah. I think maybe Bill Patty Hurt. Patty Lupone. I, yeah. I don't know. Was Bill Hurt there? Yeah. Yeah. And just how, you know, strict it was. It became progressively less strict. When my wife and I were there, it was still pretty strict. They cut a third of the class. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or No, about a fourth of the class. They warned a third of the class. Uh, so in your middle of the second year, you were warned, we may cut you at the end of the year. So when you get out of there, you know, what do you, pre- you you're, you're fully prepped, you're loaded up, you got all the tools and, and what was your dream to do? What, what, what were you wanting to do? Be a stage actor. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and you don't have all the tools, but you have as many of the tools as a school can give you. Right. So I don't want to, I, I loved the school. I would not have wanted to have gone anywhere else. Uh, it was the perfect place for me. It was difficult. It was at times quite demeaning. Mm. Uh, and it, at times it was also quite nurturing and fortifying. Uh-huh. Um, but I think what happens after any drama school, and this is not unique to Juilliard in the least, uh, is there's much you need to unlearn while you're internalizing it. So it just, a lot of what you've, what you've learned, um, just has to become part of your intuition as an actor, as opposed to a a conscious application of technique. Well, it's interesting that the idea of internalizing what you learned is, is also unlearning it because I mean, ultimately, you know, when you're in a real life work situation, you're only going to use what works for you. And that may or may not look like what you learned or didn't learn, but it, you assume that it's in there. That's exactly right. We all tailor make our strategies. Of course. I mean, like, you know, you, I talk to people about acting when I started acting more because I need to know things, you know. But, you know, so much of it, it, you know, depending on which level you're operating at, and there's a lot of them, you know, some people are just good at pretending. Mm-hmm. <laughs> some people just have a knack for being on screen or on stage. And then there are those people that have much more facility because of an education. But but anybody's craft is 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 sort of up to them how they're going to get into what they do. That is, I, I, I that's, it's, it's, it's your own approach it's like learning how to go to school but when you say front-footed when you say bold choices when you because like you know in the cohen movies you've done what have you done three two two i was supposed to do another one and then i had to back out because of a scheduling conflict which Uh, one uh no country oh what were you gonna play in that 
I'll just say I had a role in it. Um, and it oh. was not Anton Chigurh, but it was another role. Uh, and it wasn't Josh Brolin's role. Um, yeah. But it was a nice role. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I had to, I couldn't do it. Um, uh-huh. And thankfully, they didn't take that. that it, it, it was a legitimate conflict. Yeah. Um, uh, but when you say these things, when you say these choices, like when I, I think about, you know, Oh Brother and uh, and the new one. So when, when, when you talk about being in a situation where you have this room because of the control they have on the set to, to really take these chances with the character in the ballad of the new film, what were they? Well, I'm going to just generalize a little bit. Uh, so in, in American acting, we took what Stanislavski was saying mm-hmm. in an actor prepares and also in the training of the Russian theater actors. Yeah. And we brought it over here and we, depending on your attitude toward this, we either contorted it um, or we evolved it into something that they call the method, sure. um, which is the actor's studio, uh, among other places. Group theater, yeah. actor studio. And... Meisner. Th- and, th- and, and that coupled with film acting mm-hmm. and needing to do less for just lack of a more interesting way of putting it uh, yeah. uh, because the camera is so close, right. began to elevate the notion of behaving mm-hmm. over actively pursuing objectives as mm-hmm. an actor. Oh, okay. So if the camera could ha- could catch you being real and behaving in a certain way, showing emotion right. in a natural way, uh, that was suddenly venerated as great acting. Right. Uh, and so showing emotion, being real, not seeming to be uh, deploying any sort of training in terms of how to do a line or how to play a line rhetorically. Right, so you get that yeah. that, that generation at, you know, after Montgomery Cliff, James Dean, Marlon Brando, up through De Niro, Pacino, and some other cats. Like Dog Day Afternoon is a great example of what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and, and, and the ones who do it incredibly well, I mean, it's yeah. fantastic. Right. You feel like you're witnessing human behavior. Uh-huh. But there's also a tendency as a result of that uh, to lose sight of what a character actually actively wants in a scene. Yeah. Because we do as human beings. I'm doing it right now. I'm trying to get through to you and 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 we're engaged in a in a back and forth here. It's working, yeah. Tim. <laughs> uh, uh, it's active. Yeah. And so what I mean by front footed acting is that there are techniques you can use. And I learned these actually after Juilliard from uh-huh. this wonderful director I had named Mark Wing Davey, uh-huh. who now runs the graduate actor training program at, at NYU, where my wife now teaches, is to find an action. This is just one example. Yeah. Find an action for every line you have. And when you apply that action, it has to be in the form of a transitive verb. So can you can, I'm, give me some examples? Okay, so if I wanted verb. to piss you off, yeah, uh, I would pierce you. So okay. I'm going to say this line, and I'm going to use it. I'm going to, and so I would literally write that into the into my text. Pierce him with this line, and so you do that. Yeah, you do that literally for every single phrase that you have in your 
text. I'm actually making notes for because I'm I'm about to start you know sh- shooting again, and I, I need and this is the missing piece. Keep going. Uh, <laughs> and so you have all that, <laughs> and then what you do is you forget it. Yeah. So you just you don't take that to the you do that while you're working on a role. Well, but, but, okay, so you get this with every line, the transitive verb in the form of action that you sublimate uh, you know, under the line. Yeah. But is there an arcing, uh, do you think about the arc of the character's needs? You know, I when I think of the arc of a character's needs, um, I think there's something, you know, like if I'm in a scene and I'm playing with a woman and and the character wants to have sex with her. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, that's what I want. But it all evolves and changes. It's in constant flux. Um, But you know that's in place when you you read the scene and you're like, okay, so this guy wants to do this to this. And then you go line for line. Yeah. And then then you've got to forget it. Yeah. Because, of course, the next and really most exciting part is that you've made all those decisions ahead of time and yeah. you've worked on that, but then you're going to play the scene with a partner and it's all going to change. Sure. Uh, and then it gets really, really, it, it gets terrifically exciting because then it's living thought. And, and then right when you're completely in it, you're like, cut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that's just, that's just an example. And if you don't have that with Cohen acting, yeah, uh, because there's such a there's such an active precision to what they've written. Yeah, uh, you're you're not. It's not going to work because no. they're not interested in you're just coming on and behaving. They they write characters who have really really strong needs and objectives, uh-huh. uh, and usually they're deploying some pretty uh, colorful language in pursuit. Their their sort of love of the type of actor that you're talking about is is so beautiful to see. Yeah, that, I, like that I, right I, away. You know, the, the, you know, right when you see the face. You know, they just they got a hell of a casting capacity. They get it right. They they just they they just it's a treat. Get it Every right. frame yeah. is a treat. Yeah, they're like cartoon cells. Yeah. Did uh, you love working with Clooney? Yeah, he's just really. I mean, John and George were so unbelievably kind uh, to George. me. George, George oh, Clooney, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, John Turturro, and George. John Turturro uh, on "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?" Uh, so, so but, kind. Isn't that fascinating though about him? See, this is just me being the the observer. Is that he's a fucking movie star, yeah. right? And he's a great movie star. And there's a couple of them that can do this. Like, you know, Turturro's like, you know, he'll you know, he'll transform. He's a, like you a bit in that, you know, he can take on, be front-footed, you know, really yeah. do a Cohen role. But George is interesting because, you know, with movie stars who just for, you know, some God-given reason just are movie stars. They fit up there. Who that, who knows what that is? Yeah. But he 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 can act and, you know, and he can make adjustments to his movie starness. You always see Clooney in there, but he can make these adjustments. He can turn a dial, and and it's it's very effective and, and sort of amazing. I couldn't agree with you more. And you've you've not only just defined what a movie star is, because there's the movie star always has to have that aspect of them yeah. in the role, right? And they've got to be responsible, and they've got to be responsible to that, mm-hmm. um, which often inhibits movie stars from making the choices that they should be making as an actor. Mm-hmm. George is never guilty of that. Right. Um, the Descendants. Oh, yeah. Up it, in the Air. Burn After Reading. Yeah. 
that his performance in Burn After Reading is is sort of astounding. That you know all these weird quirks that he decided on and the yes. running and the you know and Brad Pitt's another one who can do it. Yeah. Uh, that hair uh, and the gum oh, chewing, all oh, those yeah, choices. The, yeah, yeah. The, the listening to the earphone. Yeah, I mean, it, those choices. Those are the choices. My my. Uh, I was talking with Joel about this the other day. The um, Clooney's uh, performance in Hail Caesar oh, when he's encountering God. Jesus at the cross. The oh, outtakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. So funny, so funny. Even when he's sitting with the communists and he's finally getting it, where yeah. he's sort of like, "Now wait." <laughs> so, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh God, that movie. See, I think that's a fucking masterpiece. I do. I no one, no one thinks it's a bad movie, but I think it's one of their best movies. And like, I seem to be in the minority, but like, I think that if somebody, if if they had a double bill, that was Barton Fink and Hail Caesar. That that's it. That is, those are their Hollywood movies. Well, yeah, well, it's both, the both of them are set at Capitol Pictures. Yeah, I know. Where I writer know. is king. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> I, did, I, I worked with uh, Lerner, with Char, uh, Charles Lerner, that's his name. Uh, right? Michael, uh, Michael Lerner. Lerner. Yeah. He was on my show. He played my, my mother's husband. Oh, he's, right. He's a piece of work, dude. He is something else. How about him in A Serious Man? Great. <laughs> I auditioned for that movie. Oh, you did? Yeah, but I, w- I wasn't, there was no way. Did you go into the room and meet them? No, I didn't. I oh. never met them. I've sat, be- I've, I've met Francis, I, like I, w- I was nominated for a uh, SAG award for Glow. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm a big fan of hers and them and, you know, and, and I'm standing there, and, you, you, you know, I've wanted, I want to interview her and stuff. But and I, obviously I wasn't going to win a SAG award, but it was very, like I had, you know, it's all gr- gravy to me. I'm like, yeah. oh, great. I mean, I, you know, I'm very flattered. It was a, a big star-studded night that I skulked away from. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't say anything. I always feel weird doing that. Hi. Yeah. How are you? Not you on a plane. I. I did. Uh, you don't remember, but I was like, I'm gonna. That's yeah. That's uh, that Well, I uh, am so uh, glad you did uh, uh, follow up on the invitation. As I said uh, to you, I'm my son um, Henry, who's at uh, Oberlin College. Uh, in, he's at Oberlin. Yeah, in the conservatory. He's Musician? doing uh, classical composition and jazz composition uh, over five years. He's doing two degrees. Wow. Yeah. And so it's been great for my wife and me because we went to conservatory to uh-huh. to have him in conservatory getting uh, what we consider is a great education. What's there. his instrument? His instrument is jazz guitar. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he's been playing since he was seven. One of my great joys is on... On this movie, I had to learn the guitar from scratch yeah. to be able to play this, to, to accompany myself. And ride a horse. And ride a horse at the, at same, the same time. time yeah. Uh, and so my son was my teacher. Oh, good um, story. Yeah, and he was so um, generous and kind and thoughtful yet exacting. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and patient. He wanted you to get it right. Yeah. Uh, and he would just, you know, uh, making sure that I, uh, uh, you gotta really press the strings, dad, and you uh, know, all that stuff. But, but you, know, you had about three chords to learn, right? Just Maybe. three chords. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. It was like G, A, and D or something? Yeah. Uh, uh, G, uh, D, and yeah, I think it is A. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. 
And if I got that wrong, man, am I going to hear about it from him? <laughs> <laughs> God damn it, Dad, one thing. Except now that I've been on your show, there's yeah. going to be nothing I can do wrong in his in his uh, eyes because well, he's such a huge fan of yours. Oh, that's great. Uh, maybe you can show me some licks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll just go up to Ohio, <laughs> knock on the door and say like, yeah, I talked to your dad. He said, show me some licks. Yeah. Now, do you travel and do comedy? Sure. These, these I do. Days, yeah. I do. I was just in New York at the Beacon on Saturday. Oh wow! Yeah, it was something. That Did was you something. like playing there? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I get, I get, make myself a little crazy be, before the big ones, but uh, it was beautiful. What a great theater that is! Yeah. Oh I've, my god! I've seen weights there. Oh yeah, uh, I do a lot of music there. And ZZ Top, I got Fran and Joel to go with me to see ZZ Top <laughs> at the Beacon. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Recently? Uh, no, this was about ten years ago. Oh, okay. Uh, and and we're watching them, and I'm really, really into it. And sure. I think I maybe even wore my open road hat, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the LBJ cowboy hat. Uh-huh. And and, uh, and 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 Ethan and Trish went too. Um, Ethan and his wife Trish and Fran and Joel didn't last the whole time. And at a certain point, I, they were having a good time. Yeah, but I think they could just take so much. Fran sure. just looked over at me, and she just said, "Tim." You are such a cracker. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, I, uh, maybe, uh, it's great. <laughs> no, man, we grew up with it. I mean, yeah. like, I you know, I grew up in New Mexico, and man, when Tejas came out, I grew up in the Southwest. I don't know what you call Oklahoma. Southwest. Yeah. So, like, you know, you had a, I mean, I, I love ACDC. I love Leonard Skinner. I'm not necessarily talking about any sort of, like, local bands here. I mean, it was mainstream rock radio, but it was rock radio. But then there was right. also, back then, you had the FM station where, you know, where you'd be, you know, kind of get hip to some stuff you didn't know about. All right. Well, I think we could do this for a while, but I think we're, we're good. Okay. Excellent. You, you yeah, feel good? Yeah. Thank you so much. Are you going to direct any movies soon? Uh, Writing, directing? I have, well, I have a play. um, I wrote a play about Socrates, Uh um, and that's going to be done at the Public Theater next year. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Michael Stuhlbarg is playing the lead role. Oh, he can do anything. Yeah. Um, And and then I have a new script I've written, and I've got to cast it. And if I can get somebody to play the couple of leads, I'll be making that next year. I'm doing this show, Watchmen, right now um, as an actor. And that'll go right into Socrates rehearsals. And then when I'm done with that, I might direct another movie. I noticed you did two uh, Franco's Faulkner movies. I've done eight movies with James. Yeah. Yeah. I you love get, him. He's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I talked to him. He's great. Yeah. He's a, he's a movie star. Did. Movie yeah. star. He's a movie yeah. star. He is. Yeah. He can he can really, you know, he's got a way about him. Well, it's great talking to you, man. All right. And I hope this makes your son happy. Thank you. Thank you. That was a doozy, right? Huh? Oklahoma oil juice. Wow. I loved it. Good guy. And we you know, after the interview, we he FaceTimed his son, who's a guitar player and a fan of the show. And we talked I inter- he introduced me to his son on FaceTime and we his son played some guitar for me and we talked a little bit. It was a nice little moment between the three of us. Technology, folks. So Let's play some guitar.
Boomer lives. 